Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Motherhood is simultaneously completely dismissed as a job while also being cited as this vast cause of human ills. What fresh hell. Laughing in the face of motherhood. No, you don't want to become one of those helicoptering freaks. With Margaret Abel's and Amy Wilson. It is vitally important to spend lots of quality time with your children. A podcast that solves today's parenting dilemmas so you don't have to. But you must be sure not to give your kids too much or you'll completely rob them of grit. And kids without grit are awful. Hey everybody, welcome to What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Amy. And this is Margaret. And today we are talking about mom blame. Mom blame. Why do moms always get the blame? Margaret, we're soaking in it. I mean, I'll speak for myself. (laughs) I'm familiar with this topic. I'm living it. Let me tell you that in an unusual change of roles, I did the research for this episode. And let me tell you, I have become radicalized. You know how they talk about like people going down like weird internet wormholes and becoming like weirdly radicalized and like running off to foreign countries to join weird armies or like becoming whatever. This is what happened to me while researching this episode. The scales have fallen from my eyes. I have fallen from the horse on the road to Damascus and I have been changed. Okay. All right. Hit me. I'm so excited for this, for you to bring the research and the hot take. Yeah, I am too. Bringing some research. I'm going to start with the, I don't even want to say mother of this uh, field because I don't know if she was a mother, but Paula J. Kaplan did a study in, wait for it, 1985 with a guy named Hall McCorkwadale. I'm sure I'm butchering that name, but we'll link to it. You can read it. Mother blaming in major clinical journals. So this is like a, what do you call it? It's an article, but it's a, you know how it's like some articles are like, I wrote this for medium.com. And some articles are like, I'm really smart. And I wrote this for a journal and it's full of citations. Right. And it's a study of studies, sounds like. Like they're studying the other studies in journals, like the one this was published in this sort of thing. Yes, they're doing like a deep dive research. I think it's called like a clinical stu- a clinical article or something like that. But you know what I mean? It's like a smarty pants article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's what it says. 
The authors examined 125 psychiatric and psychological journals from 1970 to 1982 that dealt with the causes of mental health problems. In those articles, mothers were blamed for 72 different types of psychological conditions in their children, ranging from depression to marijuana use to hyperactivity to homosexuality and even an inability to deal with colorblindness. <laughs> Speaking as the mother of more than one colorblind child, did you know that about me? It's a little, little uh, tip Well, about Amy, me. I have some uh, notes for you on that because it's your fault. Get ready to judge. So it's my fault that the kids, that one or more of my children might be colorblind, but also that they're not dealing with it well is also my fault. Is that what this is saying? I mean, probably, right? It's the mother's fault, the inability to deal with colorblindness in the person who possesses it. Is there, is also Whatever is going on with their rods and cones is not your fault. That is genetic, but their inability to deal with colorblindness is your fault. Yeah. I mean, we're talking in, in this case, like minor colorblindness that is like a fun, like cocktail party trick. You know, those things on the phone when you pull out like... Right, and you can't see And it's it. all like green dots, and then there's an eight and blue dots. I have... More than one. It's exactly. like the dress, right? It's like the dress that changes colors. I have more than one child who can't see the eight, you know, who can't read the numbers. And it's just so endlessly fascinating when you can. Well, I hope you stay up tonight and wonder what you've done, Amy. I think they deal with it pretty well. <laughs> well, may, then maybe you did a great job. So this is uh, the 70s and early 80s. So this is back in a time when like autism was... The refrigerator mother's fault, right? Everything. Correct. As was schizophrenia, to be clear. Schizophrenia was the product of the schizophrenic mother. But the good news is, in the almost 40 years since then, this is surely cleared up and this isn't a thing anymore, right? <laughs> um, really? So zooming out, <laughs> okay. I think what's so interesting about this and what is the cause of my radicalization on the subject is that motherhood is simultaneously completely dismissed as a job, right? Like, oh, you don't work? You're just a mom? Stay-at-home mom? Mm -hmm. Totally invisible? Like, people walk away from you at the cocktail party because, like, we could not care less that you are... Like, a mom is not a job. Like, what do you actually do to contribute to society? Right. While also being cited as this vast cause of human ills. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we retain both of those ideas at the same time, Amy? Right. How could what you do be completely ineffectual and also everything bad is was your fault and you're doing? Right. Like, what you do is not worth a salary. It's not even worth being discussed for two minutes at a cocktail party. It's so boring. Mm -hmm. But also, as we look around the universe, the cause of every ill, it's you. Hi, you're the problem. It's you. Yeah. Like, I mean, this does live on for sure, right? Like, any way that you're not fully self-actualized. Oh, I'm citing the parenthood of this study, but not at all to say this is a problem of the 80s. It's just that this was the sort of foundational study. Yes. It was in the 1980s before somebody said, wait a minute, like moms are getting blamed for all of this. I'm assuming this was sort of the first study that sort of collected, like, seems like moms are being blamed for all of these things. And maybe there's an overapplication. Correct. Well, except for let me take you back to 1958, where sociologist Helen Merrill Lind, in her book, says, now she's 1958, so she's looking back to like 1920s. For the last 25 years or more, child psychologists have been warning parents, especially mothers, of all the things they must not do or be, lest they permanently damage their children. Parents have been censured for being over-strict and over-permissive, 
over-detached and over-protected, and for a thousand other mistakes of commission and omission. <laughs> commission and omission. This is it. This is why we've been uh, have doing What Fresh Hell for seven years, right? Because you're wrong you're, if you do and if you don't. You're wrong if you... Right. Stop helicoptering, you crazy lady. Your kids are going to, you know, grow up to be uh, permanent babies. But, wait, you're not doing enough. Like, how come you're not helping your kid thrive in these eight different ways? And how come they're not eating, like, French, you know, children? Right, right. How come you're not every teachable moment? Yeah. This is deeply familiar. So has anything changed since the 80s? Like... No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that certainly... There are areas where, like, we have come to understand that, like, the 1970s idea, as you were mentioning, of the schizophrenic mother, the refrigerator mother causing autism. Or, like, the 70s, it makes me think of the, like, by you guys, like, you guys figure out what's for dinner. I'm going to my ceramics class, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to care about myself for a change that... At least in popular culture, I feel like that's held up as the sort of selfish mom finding herself. That's the beginning of a whole other set of problems. For sure. And it is absolutely worth stating that poor moms, single moms, and moms of color get the worst of this, right? This is like single moms are the cause of everything that's wrong in society. That's a, you know, a trope that we hear again and again, which is ironic since like the moms are actually the ones they're doing it. They're single moms. And the fact that like moms on welfare are bringing everything down. There's so many ideas around how moms are not just to blame for what is happening with their own children and like why their own children are turning out to be a mess. But our entire society's ills are often laid at the feet of like the poorest and the most disenfranchised moms among us. Absolutely. I did a fresh take with Esau Macaulay a couple months ago, and he wrote a book called How Far to the Promised Land, a memoir. And he talked about it so clearly that the welfare queens, which is a, you know, offensive stereotype of the 80s when he was growing up, and how to be a poor black child with a poor black single parent, mother, she was a welfare queen. So just her existence, her very motherhood was something that was already like a problem, right? But that he was there was a problem and was a blight on society. And what it's like to grow up with that sort of negative pall cast upon your like existing in the world. It was really, I thought about it in a new way. Because I remember that. I'm old enough to remember, you know, welfare queens being on the news. You know, like, that's the number one problem with society. Right. And definitely mentioned in, like, a presidential address and stuff that this idea that, like, welfare, single moms were sucking all these resources that they didn't deserve. But that dialogue has not disappeared at all. I mean, the idea of, like, single motherhood and people taking handouts and stuff, that that is a cause of society's ills still with us. But as you're talking about like what has changed, this blew my mind as the mom of a kid on the spectrum. That mother blame, this is from the AMA Journal of Ethics in an article by Mitzi M. Waltz, PhD. Autism was considered at one time the fault of refrigerator mothers, cold mothers who did not show children enough love, as we were discussing. That paradigm, once rejected, had a new one take its place. Intense demands that mothers be engaged in therapeutic parenting almost every waking moment. This is only a subtler iteration of the child-saving mentality that places blame for autism. No longer 
the objected refrigerator mother, today's autism mom is supposed to be a child-saving hero, expected and encouraged to do anything and everything in pursuit of normalcy, from special diets to special schools to medication to therapeutic toys. The discourse, however, remains one of covert parental guilt. If your child becomes an autistic adult, it is your fault because you'd failed to do enough to save him or her. And that just, this is like, it's the paradigm has shifted, but into another kind of poisonous avenue, you know, that like another impossible. It's not your fault, but if you don't fix it, it is now somehow that, and I do think that I'm always a little bit wary of these absolutes of like, now the problem is this definition. The problem is multi-layered. And I do think, you know, in my own life that I see a problem and I know you're this way, Amy, like I see a problem and I try to think of ways to fix it. Like that is part of my nature. It is probably coded into my femaleness to a certain degree. Possibly, I don't know if it's genetically coded or if it's coded in my socialization, but when I see a problem, I will do a lot to fix it. And so having a kid on the spectrum, yes, like I do go into the mode of like, okay, what are the, what's on that? I'm researching, I'm reading books, I'm going to figure it out. And that I have found over time that I've had to back away from that to some degree, just because I don't have the time or the effort to do it all. But there is a humming thing in the back of my head, not just with my kid on the spectrum, with all of my kids, that how they turn out is a constant function of my own behavior. And that what is radical about thinking about mom blame, because I was like, oh, I'll do some research and then we'll have a conversation that it's like, Amy, we've got to stop giving ourselves such a hard time. Like, we have to break society as we know it. I'm sorry to tell you this, but like, we actually have to look at this through a lens of what if it's not my responsibility, but like, what if we completely change how we think about the role of mothers? Yes. Yes. It's huge, Amy. It's huge. To pin it all back on, stop being so hard on yourself. Like moms are so hard on themselves. Like that's it. Like go get self-care. Go get self-care. You're making this all up in your head that these expectations are unrealistic and placed upon you. Like, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And when you have a kid who's struggling, you have a kid who has a health condition that's confusing and chronic and not great, it is, yes, you're right, it is just presumed often by us that the person who's got to make the appointments and do the research and chase the answers is the female parent. Yes, until the day that your kid gets into a school that you're really proud of after all your hard work and you post about it on Facebook and people are like, look at her, taking response, oh, she can't let go. Like, that's not your accomplishment, mom. That's your kids. Back off, you know? Back off. Exactly. You're wrong if you're leaning in too hard and you're wrong if you're leaning back too much. And yeah, it's extremely complicated. It makes me think of another way that I think this is more complicated in the current parenting state we're in. Can I tell you what that is after this? Please. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? 
Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. You were saying before the break that, as an example, if you're a parent of a kid on the spectrum, that you have to just immediately become full-time super parent of a kid on the spectrum to make sure you're doing all the interventions and everything that they need to grow up as self-fulfilled as they can be, whatever that is, right, for your child and, and what they need because you will always have it reflected back on you that you might have or could have or should have done more. Done something else. Yeah. Now I think, right, there's something else coming out over the top. I actually just saw it this morning on Instagram, somebody posting that my job, she said, as a mother of an autistic child is not to change my child, it's to change the world. And I thought, is that <gasps> big job? Is that your job? <laughs> right. Wait, I understand the sentiment, but like, I'm tired just thinking of that job. Yeah. Now I have to go out every day and make the whole world accommodate that my kid might not act in a public place like you think a kid should act. And, and you know, who cares if you think that? What's mind blowing is that there's a part of me that's like, I'll take refrigerator mother. I'll just take this was all your fault and there's nothing to be done about it now. Too late now. <laughs> like, I think I'd rather that paradigm in some way than the paradigm of like you. And this is how things change for kids. And I, and the last thing, and please hear me, I am not criticizing the like 
super moms who go out and like get this stuff done. Right. This is who changes the world. This is like, you know, Lorenzo's oil, the mom. There's old <laughs> talk about an old timey alert, an oldie locks alert. Back in my day. But I mean, it's the movie about the woman who's she's got this like kid with special needs and she can't figure out the medical mystery and she like finds the oil that cures him like susan okay. sarandon as like a sweet protagonist completely uncomplicated figure yeah she won the oscar i'm sure whatever but like i don't want to find the special oil i just want to take a nap and read my book and watch the netflix and i think that because you won't win anyway because you're not gonna nobody's ever gonna be like you come to the front of the line you mom have done everything right well yeah i mean susan sarandon might play me in a movie though amy that'd be good (laughs) i'll take that but no i mean i do think that this is and i do not think to be fair that this comes all from expectations like i think this comes a little bit from you know our own identity or whatever drives us to have that like I am the person who can solve everybody's problems. And that's a big part of my identity. And like, I don't run towards every problem because society and the patriarchy tell me so, question mark. Like, I don't exactly know Mm -hmm. where this stems from. But I think thinking of it in a context of mom blame is like so baked in the cake is very useful and helpful. And I have another Paula Kaplan for you. Can I hit you with it? So Paula Kaplan wrote a book. Her definitive text was called, unfortunately, I was like, we need to have Paula Kaplan on the show. She passed away. And I'm very sad to hear it. Because when I read this stuff, I was like, I want to talk to this person so badly. She wrote a book called The New Don't Blame Mother. This is again in the 80s. But I'm referencing an article from Medium by a woman whose name I'm sure I will not get right, but it is Rosaic Hasseldine, as I understand its pronunciation. And it's called How Mother Blaming Hurts the Mother-Daughter Bond. So she's referencing daughters, but I found this like very useful as a concept in terms of our own relationships with our kids and how this informs it. And I think, Amy, this is really going to land with you. Okay. All right. She describes mother-daughter blaming as moderate air pollution that we learn to tolerate and ignore until we wake up to how harmful it is to our health. Mother blaming is in the air we breathe within this patriarchal society, which blames mothers for everything and anything. And this woman, the author, is a therapist. And she talks a lot about, let me give you this example so I don't try to explain it and get it wrong. A daughter in her 20s came to see me because she wanted help with her mother's behavior, which her previous therapist had diagnosed as controlling. She told me that her previous therapist had diagnosed her mother as enmeshed and controlling and wanted help setting clearer boundaries with her mother. As she talked about how her mother is both loving and caring and needy and controlling, I asked her to describe who her mother was as a person and a woman. She looked surprised by my question. She said that no one had ever asked her who her mother was as a person. And after a minute or two of silence, she said, I don't know. She has always just been mom. She is mom in the family. Even my dad treats her as mom. And this just, I get chills just reading it out loud. This idea that like mothers are just this kind of huge archetype in our lives to be handled, basically. That like, you know, mom, she's so controlling. We just have to 
talk to her therapist about how to control her and how to put boundaries around her because she is just the controlling mom. And or just that she's just going to be that way. Yes, I, I can think of a perfect example of this. Yes. Well, hit me, hit me, because this really got me. And I was like, I feel like we've had conversations around this. But this idea of like, even our therapists are like, well, your mom, you know, your mom, she was this and that. Like, your mom was the result of a ton of things that like, we're not even bothering to try to understand. We're just being like, oh, you're poor controlling mom. Let's put boundaries around her. Right, exactly. I'm thinking of a recent example. I was... um. We were dropping off my kid at college and my spouse, my husband was on the phone with somebody that he works with and they were, you know, just chit chat. He was making small talk with this person and I'm only listening to the one part of the conversation, right? I'm only getting the like walking down the sidewalk, listening to what, what my spouse is saying. And it was like, yeah, we're dropping him off today. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know how moms are. She's definitely going to be upset. Like the person on the phone said something to my husband, like, and here, cue the waterworks with the mother and my, you know, and my husband just playing along with somebody like being like, yep. Oh yeah. She's going to be a mess. That's for sure. And I was like, what are you like? Get off the phone. And I said, I like, stop that. Stop like gendering me with like, I'm going to be the crying mess. Cause no, I'm not. And like, don't participate in that. Like, you know how moms are. And it was a completely harmless example, but it, this sort of helps me understand I think my husband was like, okay, sorry, like, sort of like, ooh, but didn't, I don't think he really got why it bothered me so much. And I think it was two men on the phone saying like, this is how moms behave. So this is certainly how that little lady's going to behave as if we're all the same, as if even if I were emotional, that would be something to be just like I ruled out and withstood by the much more, you know, rational spouse who doesn't have to feel anything emotional. You know what I mean? It just was, there was a lot implicit in that. I'm like, I'm not playing that. Like, that's not, stop projecting that on me. That's not who I am. And you know that. Well, I think you're jumping to solutions, Amy, in part two, but I think it is really important to give voice to this stuff. And I think that we've talked about it in a lot of other contexts, but this has really crystallized for me the idea. And now that I have teens and tweens, and I feel like when we started the podcast, I had little, little kids who were like, their problem was like, they were annoying and yet loud and needy. (laughs) And then you would sometimes talk about your like tweens as, you know, it's hard when they're kind of like rejecting of you. I'm like, oh God, a kid who rejected me sounds like the best thing to ever happen to me. These kids are like hanging out. Like I can't wait for the day these kids are rejecting me. (laughs) But I think that the work of humanizing ourselves for our own children, and then like I have other thoughts about how to do this in a larger way in society is super important. And I find myself saying to my kids sometimes, that really hurts my feelings. That, you know, I also had a tough day and that the way you're talking to me really hurts my feelings. And really giving voice to like saying in front of your kids, like, that seems really dismissive. I mean, I'm not to pick on your husband. Like, I totally understand the dynamic of like, we're in a joke. And Mm -hmm. I think the conversations around this get very complicated, because you don't want it to become like your husband's having a fairly harmless conversation with someone. And you're suddenly like, I will never tolerate this and I'm going to call you out. <laughs> These gendered perceptions. <laughs> These gendered perceptions. Dude, that's the patriarchy talking. It's like, whoa, dude, I was just trying to like. Just joking with somebody I don't know. Right. Get off the phone with a colleague, you know, like obviously you don't want the conversation to come down to like one line that you said is now demonstrative of everything. But I do think that giving voice 
to, and really pushing back against this idea of like, I'm not a person, I'm just your mom. It's very, very important in a way that I think is both micro and macro. Like saying to your children, what you said just hurt my feelings. You know, sometimes it's my turn to get what I want and not your turn to get what you want. And, you know, I'm afraid of that thing. And it is really hard for me to show up as myself in certain situations because of the way that I was treated in other situations. And I think those conversations, we feel like either there's not room for them or we feel like, I don't know, maybe even it's a little tweet tweet to be like, my needs. It's like, what do you think about that? I'm thinking back like, but why do we do this? Like, like, why is there this need to sort of blame the mother and keep her at bay? And like, the problem is the mother, if she just was like, stop being around all the time, there wouldn't be these problems until she's not around. And then the problem was she wasn't around. It doesn't make any sense. But I think it's like we each have in us, male, female, everybody, we each have this need in us to need our mother. And then as we get older, to reject our mother, to be able to live independently. And I do think there's a completely understandable psychological thing in us like yeah who needs her anyway like she's just getting in my way like I think that you have to have a little bit of that thinking in order to leave the nest and so and then we all have that right and so it's a bunch of you know male scientists 100 years ago 50 years ago being like you know who the real problem is moms am I right guys like it was like one big phone call like of dudes being like you know who'll be crying mom because that's how she is like that's that was what you know they didn't have to talk to women they didn't have to make decisions with women But I also do think that like, I I was talking to a professional about this, about my kids coming home from college and how your relationship with them changes. You go through that thing of them leaving the nest, which is hard. And then then they've left and they come back and there's this, you know, sort of readjustment that has to happen when they're back under your roof, when you're telling them to load the dishwasher and like things that they're not used to that, that it's back, that there can be irritants. And, you know, this person just said to me, like, just expect that to occur. Expect there to be a regression where they need your help with something. And then they're mad at you that they need your help with something. And isn't mom annoying? Like, that's just going to happen. And it because it does. And it doesn't make it like, okay. And it doesn't mean that you have to accept it as true and something to fixing yourself. You just, you just sort of say like, oh, there it is. There it is. It's the push pull of I'm independent. No, I'm not. And I'm mad at you that I'm not independent. So I think just sort of knowing that it's going to happen because that's how human nature is, but it doesn't make it true that moms are the root of everything that went wrong in somebody's life. I don't know, sort of holding that awareness is helpful. I also think voicing it is important. And I think that you're right. There's an old Simpsons joke where Homer says, beer, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. And I'm like, also moms, as it turns out. But I think that there is a role in this that is bigger than just like, because I really, when prepping for this episode, thought our conversation was going to be like, now that we understand it, we can take better care of ourselves. And in my new radicalized self, Amy, I'm like, no, no. Now that we understand it, we must fight it with all we have. And so let's take a break because after this, I want to talk a little bit about some radical solutions. I love it. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health, and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. 
Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different Different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L U M E N dot M E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. And now, rules for moms. From the What Fresh Hell podcast, it is vitally important to spend lots of quality time with your children. So crucial. But please note, not so much time that you smother them. God, no. You don't want to become one of those helicoptering freaks. Ugh, how gross. Quick question. Where are you in terms of college prep for your kid? (laughs) What do you mean you haven't thought about it? But is your kid 12? You're way behind. It's likely because you're too busy at your job to make time for what's really important. Or it could be because you stayed home and never modeled the value of independence. Whatever the cause, it's super important right now to stay focused. Give your kids your all and they will thrive. But you must be sure not to give your kids too much or you'll completely rob them of grit. And kids without grit are awful. Ugh, the worst. That's why it is so key to foster a strong sense of self-esteem and ability to do for themselves. I'm sorry, what? You let your kids play unsupervised? That's a little thing we call negligence. Side note, please do not brag about your kids' accomplishments on social media. Uh, so embarrassing. It's not all about you, Mom. Please also be aware that any negative outcomes for your child are, in fact, completely your fault. We hope that's clear. This has been Rules for Moms. From the What Fresh Health Podcast. Okay, so I want to talk about this in terms of a metaphor. Do you listen to Maintenance Face, the podcast, Amy? I do. I do. I I have known again. Okay. So a lot of people listen to Maintenance Face. If you don't, it's about diet culture, uh, body shaming. We talked uh, to Virginia Soul Smith about kind of existing in a larger body and how we start to change the dialogue around that. And I feel like this is something I have watched change in 
real time in the last five years. And one of the things, it's a lot about just how we treat weight, what role it plays. And I went to the doctor two days ago and they were like, are you comfortable being weighed or not? And I thought, this is real time. I am watching the dialogue around this change. That is something that no one would have ever asked me five years ago. And now there's a big dialogue about whether or not weight should play a role in the doctor when you're going to get checked for an earache or different things. Like your weight has nothing to do with why you have an earache or not. And that marrying those two things is harmful to all people. And that happened because people were willing to have some difficult and uncomfortable conversations, it occurs to me, to say like, hey, you know what? Somebody probably said to that nurse practitioner or whoever it was along the way, like, you know what? That's not, I'd rather you not weigh me or don't tell me what I weigh. Or like somebody brought it up. Somebody started that conversation. I think people brought it up to her. And I also think there has been a larger cultural conversation Mm -hmm. around how we treat weight in this country and how it's not working the way we've been doing it and we're going to stop doing it. And that people who, like, I definitely remember the dialogue 10 years ago that was like, oh my God, fat acceptance, ha ha ha, these losers. Like, how dare they ask for anything when being fat is completely their fault. And like, that dialogue has changed for the better in the past 15 years because of activism around it and because of people being willing to have one-on-one conversations and people being able to have wide conversations, you know, people writing about it, talking about it in public spaces. We are changing the conversation about weight culturally in small ways. I'm not like, yay, and we're done, and scene, great job. And that example really came to me when I was thinking about this. And I think that like, this is how we need to start changing the conversation about mothers and how we blame them for things. And let me read you this quote from this Medium article. The counseling and marriage family professions have a responsibility to fight against mother blaming by exposing how mother blaming is designed to harm a mother's ability to know herself and the emotional attunement between mothers, and she says, and daughters. I'm going to say and children. Right. Even that, I was thinking that the mother-daughter thing that she's so interested in is kind of another example of the same thing. It's even broader than that. It has a duty to expose the implicit bias we all internalize about motherhood, and it has a duty to examine the theories that are being taught as fact for hidden sexist beliefs and harmful gender role stereotyping. Like the whole dialogue around motherhood, I think it has, it's changing. Like I think that the refrigerator mother is like, okay, that's crazy. But I think as the dialogue continues to evolve, the like, what did your mother do to cause your problems? starting point of all like conversations, especially therapeutic conversations, is worth examining. Yeah. I mean, it it comes from a time when the dad was pretty uninvolved day to day with the raising of you, like showed up at dinner time, if that, right, provided for the family, the mom was making all the decisions. I think that's changing. So pretty soon there'll be blame to go around. Like my parents messed me up. My dad did this because it isn't the mom doing all the child raising anymore. And I don't think it's just mothers and fathers. I think it is, this is another quote from the same article. It is common in my experience for therapists to admit to see mothers as people. In our patriarchal society, motherhood is all defining of mother's life and identity. And that this becomes normalized in counseling and human development theories. And that 
that is sort of the source of the problem that like the monolithic mother, right? That like the mom can't stop crying at college drop off. And like, oh my God, we have to set boundaries around your mother who wants to see the kids again. Like Mm -hmm. that mother as like a concept that is infused with eye rolling negativity needs to change. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's right. That lights me up, man. That lights me up. I totally, I totally agree. And I think it's exciting to live in a time when that's a possibility. But that, just going back to that whole, like, and the mother-daughter dynamic, and, like, the daughters need to stop being mad at the moms. And, like, you don't know what you don't know, right? Like, this person in the 80s was so right about that, but still had this sort of blind spot that, like, it's the mother-daughter relationship that needs to be fixed, and the mother-son relationship is not a thing. This is the Medium article. So this isn't the same person, Amy. Okay, all right. But that, you know, I just think about how the whole outdated stereotypical idea that I think still exists that when a son gets married, it's, you know, goodbye, because now the daughter-in-law is going to take over, right? Like now the young mom is going to be in her annoying all need. Your space has been taken by the new young mom and she's going to set boundaries. Yeah. But your daughter will be a daughter for the rest of your life. And so I do think there are a lot of us whose parents have different expectations of their adult daughters and their adult sons. And then we take them on, right? That really, I have to be the one to drive dad to his physical therapy appointment because I'm the daughter. And so I'm supposed to do more of that sort of work because I'm better at it or something. You know, it's just, it's something that we continue to accept and assume. And I think it's fundamental. And I do, I have a lot of faith in the next generation because I see it with like the young women we work with and just young women, my nieces, I, I feel like they approach things really, really differently. And they're not kind of putting up with some of the nonsense that we put up with. But I really came into this as I, I've said repeatedly, but I, I'm so stuck on it. Like, oh, well, well, once we understand this, we can synthesize it and accept it and we can take care of ourselves in relation to this thing. And in thinking about it under these contexts and reading this writing, I was like, oh no, this needs to change. I need to demand respect for myself. I need to say to my children, like, it is actually not okay for you to like dump your garbage all over me when you're in a bad mood. I'm an actual human person and it doesn't feel good to me when you do that. And by the way, when you goofy colleague of husbands are goofing on me because I'm upset that my children who I was told by society I was supposed to invest 18 years in are, are now leaving, like, I don't accept that. I reject it in the same way that I reject being weighed at the doctor's office when I have an earache. I feel that there is a lot of like work to be done in our own lives. And I, I have had conversations with people I've dated and people in my life about like, and I, this is a tough topic because I had a very good mom. She was an excellent, good at the job, a genuinely good person and did great it at the role. She was a therapist. Well, she was also a therapist. So I think she was also a, what, what's the, she was not self-actualized, but self-examined, you know, like she. Yeah. I mean, she, I got lucky. I had a really, really good mother. I got lucky. But even when I talk to people who are like, my mother was useless, there is a little part of me that's like, you are alive, though. I mean, she did feed you every day. Like, I just, after becoming a mom, I'm like, you know how you get 200 on the SATs just for filling out your name? Like, I'm like, she gets a 200 from me, though. Like, she didn't do nothing. I'm sure she did not 
do a good job. And I'm sure she hurt you in many ways. But I think there is a lot of room. I don't know how this plays out. I think the problem is like, you don't ever want to play this out individually, because people have their own difficult individual experiences that you cannot comment on and you cannot understand. But I do think writ large, I am really interested in like the next generation of a movement that says, uh-uh, we're not doing it. We're not doing the thing where it's all mom's fault. I hope that, you know, some of the people listening who have like a two-year-old, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, because so many of our listeners are at an earlier place in their parenting journey than us. I feel like this might be really helpful and useful to sort of, I don't know, jump the line a little bit and be like, yeah, this is coming and don't stand for it when, you know, everybody rolls their eyes at you as having always been, you know, way extra for stupid reasons in 10 years. Like, no, you weren't. You're doing a great job. Now you're going to be doing a great job then. Absolutely. And I do think that we try on the podcast to push back against any suggestion that like, oh, the problem is mom is so uptight or mom is too relaxed or mom isn't doing it right. Mom's too anxious or mom. Right, right. But I do think after like this researching this episode, it's really caused me to rethink like a lot about just giving voice to a mom is a person. <laughs> it doesn't seem that radical, but it's one of those like simple but extremely radical ideas that like your own mother and all mothers are people living in an unsupportive structure that kind of pegs them into difficult roles. And then their own development has caused them to have their own problems functioning within that system. And that's different than like, I roll mom, which, you know, I think is, it's just useful to reflect on. And then, Amy, let the revolution come. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready. We've raised some consciousness today of us, of ourselves. Oh, of myself. I'm like, completely, when my husband comes home, I'm going to be like, have a seat. We need to talk. (laughs) Friends, having solved the role of mothers throughout time, we would now like to ask you a favor. We would like you to make sure that you are following this podcast wherever you listen. And do tell a friend about the podcast. We are continuing to trying to grow these low these many years into the podcast. And what helps that is people who are following on every platform, wherever you get your podcasts, make sure you're following. It's true that word of mouth is the number one way that people find new podcasts to listen to. It's certainly how I do it. So if you enjoyed this episode, you can probably within certainly within Apple Podcasts, within Spotify, within Good Pods, within many, many podcast apps, you can tap on the little square with an arrow coming out of it and share it right from the app to a friend who you think might enjoy it. Or to social media and just say, hey, friends, looking for a podcast? Check out Amy and Margaret. (laughs) Yes. That's what we want you to do. To the world. Share it to the world. Share it to the world. And with that, thanks so much for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. So long. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. 
The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. 